Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, Paul writes, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who is need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul has spoken of the greatness of the church in verses 1 through 6, the gifts in the church in verses 7 through 13, the growth in the church in verses 14 through 16. We're reminded earlier that we're saved by grace and our hearts, Paul writes, used to be dead and used to be dark and used to be hard. But Christ has delivered us. And he's given us a new life in verses 20 and 21. Paul notes that we have been changed by Christ. And then he challenges us to walk in this newness of life. Because with the new life must come a new look. We're to put off the old clothes, the old dispositions, the old desires, the old directions that led us away from Christ. And then we're to put on a new disposition with new desires, a new walk in a new direction. You'll remember that we're to put on the new man in verse 24. The old man was what we were before we came to Christ. And the new man is who we are in Christ. The new man was created by Christ and we're given a new nature. And in that new nature, we're given a new incorruptible life. There, there are two words in the Greek language that translate the, the English word new. Neos, which means fresh or newly made. But there are others like it. The illustration that I would use is imagine you're in Detroit and you see a car coming off the assembly line, but it's like every other car that has come off that assembly line. The next word is um, kenos. Kenos is a word that means just made also, but it also means there's nothing like it. It's new and unique. In verse 24, where it says that, and that you put on the new man. That word new in verse 24 is that Greek word kainos, K-I-N-O-S, kainos. It means new 
and unique. That means there's none like it. There's no other thing like it. Today I learned that one of Leonardo da Vinci's uh, paintings, Salvatore Mundi, which means the savior of the world, sold at auction today for $450 million. It's the most precious piece of art that has ever been sold that we're aware of. Salvatore Mundi is a picture of Jesus. It's been called the male Mona Lisa, and there's nothing like it. It is unique. The new man in Christ is new and unique. Paul has argued Jesus has made you new. He, this isn't a refurbished you. This isn't a new and improved you. This isn't like you got hit by the devil and they've towed you to the new uh, garage where they give you a new paint job and they give you a new engine and they give you a new drivetrain and, and they try and make you look like you used to be. No, they took Jesus takes everything and then he puts it in the trash and then he makes a brand new you. Not a new and improved version, but this is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says that if any person's in Christ, they're a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has taken new or has been made new. So when a believer trusts in Jesus, believes the gospel, Jesus creates a new person in righteousness and holiness. We're born again spiritually. The Bible teaches that we've been given a new and divine nature. The Bible teaches that our old nature, Adam, sinful and corruptible and impermanent, is placed with something new that is incorruptible, eternal, and forever, marked by righteousness and holiness. And so we as Christians put off the wretched rags that used to be who we are, and we put on new robes of righteousness. So... The Christian who retains his or her rags and goes around dressed inappropriately, Paul is going to beg us to change. How? By telling us what's changed. Our tongue and our temper in verses 25 and 6. Our ability to deal with temptation in verse 7. 27. We're not to grieve or, or pain the Holy Spirit in verse 30. We're sealed to the day of redemption. We're to strip away all bitterness and wrath and anger and quarreling and injurious speech in verse 31. And so we're to put on the garments of kindness and tenderness and forgiveness in verse 32. And so he begins by telling us to tell the truth. Instead of lying. And so in verse 25 he says. So then. Putting away falsehood. Let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors. For we are members of one another. What Paul is doing in this particular passage. Is he's reaching into this. Amazing reservoir of understanding of the. Of 
of the Old Testament. Remember, Paul is a rabbi. He is trained and educated as a rabbi. He is completely familiar with the Old Testament documents. And so in Paul's writing, a line from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16, floods his consciousness where it says in Zechariah 8, 16, these are what you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. It says in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. So here he says, okay, putting away falsehood, let us speak truth to our neighbor. Paul didn't make this up. This was already revealed in the Old Testament. Paul begins with this issue of lying. And do you want to know why? Because the ancient world had the same problem as the modern world. Lying seems to be a pervasive problem among the unregenerate in the old man. We are born and we are raised and we are conditioned to play hard and fast with the truth. We've all heard the joke. How do you know when a lawyer is lying? What's the answer? His lips are moving. You all know the answer. And we can make fun of our attorney friends. But in moments of honesty, we remember that, it, that lying isn't restricted to the lawyer. It's not even restricted to the unregenerate. It seems to be found everywhere and practiced by everyone. When Isaiah received his vision from the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 5, you'll remember he has this vision of God. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He has this vision of God and he has this vision of heaven and he has this vision of angels. And in this vision of heaven and God and angels and the purity and the power and the majesty, he is overwhelmed and he says, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You never understand just how wicked you are until you look on pure holiness and righteousness, and then all of a sudden, the impurity that is our life and our heart and our lips comes to bear. You know, the government will render harsh punishments for citizens who lie on their tax returns. But have you ever heard of a government official punishing himself because he lied to you? You see, there's a different standard, isn't there? Has anyone ever said to you, I want you to tell me the truth? And then they practice deceit. And there's something wounding and egregious about this. What's really remarkable to me isn't that Paul asks us not to lie, but then he asks us to tell the truth. It's the reason that he gives that we're to do this. He says we're not to lie to each other, but we're to tell the truth to one another because we are members of one another. If you're a kind of person who underlines your Bible, you might want to underline that. Because the moment he says, 
Don't lie, but tell the truth because we're members of, of one another. But the truth is we don't always feel that way. We don't feel like we're members of one another. We feel like my life belongs to me and your life belongs to you. And I get to do what I want to do and you get to do what you want to do. We feel like somehow our lives belong simply to us. Paul doesn't say the obvious. He doesn't say, please don't lie because God is a God of truth. He doesn't say, please don't lie because Satan is a liar. And when we join the ranks of those who lie, we throw in our lot with him. Does the Bible prohibit lying? The answer is yes. Is Satan really the father of lies? The answer is yes. But Paul is giving us an entirely different motivation for honesty. He's saying that we belong to each other. He's in effect saying when you lie to each other, you're not just harming yourself. We're harming everyone around us. Because the Bible says we being many are one body joined and fit together. Remember, Paul has been pleading for unity. And he's been pleading for purity. And we can't have unity or purity if in our hearts we practice deceit and then we shun the truth. And this is really important. Because the moment in your mind that you say, I don't need that person. I don't want that person. I don't need them and I don't want them. You give yourself permission to perhaps practice deceit because in the deceitfulness of our own heart, we come to the false conclusion that it doesn't matter if they get hurt just so long as I'm still protected. And so Paul says, in order to really have unity in our fellowship, in order to really have purity in our hearts, we have to become a people who care about one another and who value honesty. And then he says, be angry and don't sin. Look what it says in verse 26. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The second thing Paul mentions after deceit and lying is anger. Paul doesn't say, oh, by the way, don't ever get angry. Aren't you glad he wrote, be angry, but don't sin? Because there's a reason why he's writing that. Let me help you think it through. Did God make you? Did God make you with a full complement of emotions? Did he make you with the emotional capacity to experience anger? Why do you suppose he did that? Why did God give you that particular emotion? There's all kinds of emotions that he gave you. Compassion and mercy and sympathy and sensitivity. Why did he give you that particular emotion? He gave you that particular emotion because anger has been given to you so that you could experience enough emotional wherewithal so that when you see a problem, you can tear up that problem. It's supposed to give you enough 
energy in order to solve the problem, but we typically wind up doing one of two wrong and sinful things. We either clam up, we get angry and we go, oh, I'm just so angry, and we just start to shut down internally. And do you know what happens when you shut down internally? You experience depression. So one way that human beings deal with their anger is they clam up. Another way that human beings deal with their anger is they blow up. You've heard of the, I just can't stuff it inside of me. I can't pretend like I'm not experiencing whatever it is that I'm experiencing. So some people clam up, which leads to depression. Some people blow up, which leads to lost relationships. And the Bible's admonition is don't clam up and don't blow up, but grow up. Grow up. Paul is using the word for anger that means it's a momentary, outward, boiling over. It's, it's, it's not, this isn't the momentary, outward outburst of rage. This is that inward, seething, slow resentment that, 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 that all of a sudden begins to occupy your heart. And so when Paul says, be angry, but don't sin, it must mean that there is a kind of anger that isn't sinful. There must be the kind of anger that motivates you to solve the problem. But what we typically do is we don't get angry at the problem. We get angry with each other. You know what my problem is? You're my problem. And we think our problem will go away when you go away. We have to define the problem in terms of the goal. What does God want? Unity. What does God want? Purity. How are we going to have unity and purity if we keep trying to get rid of each other through anger? And so, Paul is going to provide a special grouping of attitudes that's going to address this issue of unresolved anger in verse 31. He's going to there talk about malice and wrath. And it's interesting to me, Paul doesn't say, do not let the sun go down on your malice. Or do not let the sun go down on your wrath. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because anger... When it's ignored, anger when it's not dealt with, anger when it's left overnight, anger when it's left to stew and simmer inside of our heart quickly becomes bitterness and resentment and malice. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes, For we ourselves were also once foolish and disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and in envy, unquote. We used to be people who would get angry, but not in a way that honors God and pleases God. You know how you can tell the difference between anger and malice? Malice is when a person says, maybe now they'll know how I feel. If that happens to slip out of your mouth, it's gone from that place of anger to a place 
of malice because in anger it includes this malice, this issue of malice includes clamming up. Wrath includes blowing up. And God doesn't want us to, again, clam up or blow up. God wants us to grow up. This doesn't mean we ignore problems. This doesn't mean that we don't say that there are issues that need to be resolved. But we have to remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means fool, it means empty-minded, it means empty-headed. If we were to have an idiomatic translation of that word, it would be airhead. Because when you call a person airhead, You're basically implying that they're incapable of thinking through to a resolution of the problem. And he says, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell. Fool here means it's an accusation of conscience. It means you're accusing a person of having no moral ability to turn from whatever it is that that you need to turn from. That's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. So there's a kind of anger that Jesus places in the same category as murder. And Jesus knew that murder begins in the heart. Just like deceit is in the heart. And you'll notice something. When Paul says, don't lie, but tell the truth. He basically also says, be angry, but don't sin. And then in verse 27, he says, and do not make room for the devil. Think for just a moment. Pause for just a moment. Paul touches on our tongue. Then he touches on our temper. Then he touches on the tempter. I'm going to guess that 99% of your problems will go away. If you've dealt with your mouth, if you've dealt with your heart, and you've dealt with the devil. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to keep us safe and secure. Part of the Holy Spirit's job is to help you with your mouth and with your heart. Remember what I've repeatedly said to you? You have three great enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. You have three great champions. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father has over... Jesus has overcome this world. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you so that this issue of the flesh could be dealt with. And the Father has overcome the world. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work in tandem together in order to deal with the world and the flesh and the devil. So when Paul says... Make no room for the devil. Elsewhere, James in chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Both James and Paul 
tell us that we don't want to give Satan advantage. The Holy Spirit helps us in the weakness of our flesh. The Holy Spirit helps us in the wickedness of this world. The Holy Spirit helps us with the wiles of the devil. But we too must offer resistance. We're not supposed to make the Holy Spirit's job more difficult. I was trying to think of the famous playwright, I think it was Oscar Wilde, who said, I always respond to temptation in one way, by giving in. Because that's what you do as an unbeliever. That's what you do in the world. When you're faced with temptation as an unbeliever, you go, okay, I'm going to give in. You never realized just how easy it was until you got saved. Did you notice that the moment that you got saved and Jesus became an important part of your life and now all of a sudden you get tempted and you go, you know, the Bible says I'm not supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to think that. I'm not supposed to say that. We could translate this, leave no room or give no foothold for the devil. Don't allow him an opportunity. Lies and anger provide fertile soil for the enemy to grow his garden inside of your heart. Do you understand what I just said? The moment that you give place to lies and give place to unresolved anger. You are inviting Satan to come and challenge you. If you want to do the devil a favor, lie. If you want to do the devil a favor, don't deal with your anger. Do something else. Make excuses for your anger. Make excuses why you deserve to stay mad. Make excuses why you don't have to be completely honest. Jesus told the religious leaders, you're of your father the devil and the desires of, the, of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources because he's a liar and the father of it, unquote, in John chapter 8, verse 44. And so Paul says, stop lying, tell the truth. And now he says, stop stealing and work instead in verse 8. Look what it says in verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give to those who are in need. The Greek word for steal is a word that all of you know, even though you may not know it right here in the consciousness at this very moment. But the soon as I say the word steal in the Greek language, you're going to know it. Klepto. You all laugh because you go, I know that word. Klepto. What's the word that we use in our popular culture? Kleptomaniac. A person who has this compulsion to steal. So what does the Bible say if you have compulsion to steal? 
years of therapy, in-depth counseling. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that there aren't times when you need help and you need encouragement and you need insight. But the solution to this problem of the heart, according to God, isn't to just simply go to counseling. It's to stop stealing and start working. But it's even more than that. It's even more than that. It's to work in order to help others in need. R. Kent Hughes tells the story of a preacher named Dr. Roland Hill. Dr. Hill had this unfortunate experience where he was robbed at gunpoint. I don't know if you've ever been robbed at gunpoint, but it is a frightening situation. There's few things more scary in your life than when a person has a gun pointed at you and they, all they have to do to change your life forever is just to pull that trigger. And everything's going to be different. Everything's going to be changed. When that happened to Dr. Roland Hill, he, he basically said, or to Dr. Roland, or Dr. Roland Hill, he, he said to the man, you don't have to do this. You can put the gun away. As a matter of fact, if you don't do this and you put the gun away, I'll give you gainful employment. And you know what happened? The guy did exactly that. He put the gun away. Dr. Hill hired him. He became a faithful and a diligent employee. And not only did, was he faithful and diligent, but he heard the gospel. And as he heard the gospel, he was saved. He was born again. He, he became a changed person. And when it came time for his funeral, Dr. Hill was presiding over his funeral and talked about this incredible change that took place. Can you imagine going from this place in your life to that place in your life, particularly if you've ever been challenged to think, can I change? Can I really be different? Particularly if you've led a lifestyle that was entrenched in deceit and entrenched in theft. In the first century, times were really hard. And so it wasn't unusual for slaves to steal from their masters. So Paul warns against stealing or pilfering. He says, show integrity in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. And people engage in petty larceny and, and pilfering all the while, thinking that no one's ever going to miss it. The business isn't going to miss it. No one really cares. We forget that Judas didn't start his life as a thief. He didn't begin the ministry thinking, you know what, I'm going to be a thief and I'm going to just steal from the rest of the apostles. Judas went on a journey. He believed Satan's lies. And then he became angry. And then he became disillusioned with Jesus. So what about the problem of theft? Well... There was a study conducted and presented to the American Psychological Association on employee theft in the marketplace that revealed some $8 billion a year are lost through petty pilfering. The breakdown included losses to clerical errors, that was 10%. Shoplifting by outsiders, 30%. Employee theft, 60%. Think about that for just a moment. If you work at Target or Walmart. In other words, twice as much things are stolen by the employees. And so for those who can, it's God's will for you to work. 
Paul says, work with your hands that which is good. The word here for good is agathos. It means good in quality. It means with an attention to detail. So agathos here is do great work, fine work. Do work that you should be able to be proud on. And when, it, when it's using the term um, work, what is good, the implication is that it isn't harmful. In other words, have a job where you don't hurt people, where you don't take advantage of people, where you cause harm to other people. Our work shouldn't hurt people. Our work should help people. And so when he says work with your own hands, Paul isn't saying, well, what if you have a job where you have to use your head? What if, what if you have a job where you have to use your mind instead of your hands and feet? He doesn't mean that you have to do manual labor. What he means is that each worker is responsible for his or her own work. You work and then you take responsibility for what it is that you need to do. And then he says, speak what is good instead of what is rotten in verse 29. Look what it says. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification or building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Stop lying. Tell the truth. Stop stealing. Start working. Don't say bad things. Say good things. Are you starting to see the pattern of the practical implications of what Paul is saying? Paul isn't saying, stop lying and you'll, you know, you're like an Italian person sitting on their hands. I can't say anything. Okay, now I can talk again. It's not good enough to stop doing something. You have to start doing something different. The word corrupt could be translated unwholesome. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your, word, out of your mouth. The word is sapros, corrupt. It's a word that meant rotten, spoiled. Have you ever come across food that started to mold and deteriorate? Have you, have you ever been in a bachelor's refrigerator and you see stuff growing on, on, on whatever food they have on inside of it. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about something that's moldy, that's spoiled, that's rotten. It's something that, that may have started off just fine, but now it's experiencing the consequences of decay, hence rotten or foul. This would certainly include coarse language or what we would call dirty language. In other words, this is language that includes filthy jokes and lewd comments and unwholesome language. Do you know what's more gross than biting into an apple and finding a worm? That's right, finding half a worm. And you know why now. And that's exactly the illustration here. Filthy language should be as attractive as biting into a big, red, juicy apple that's full of maggots. Yeah, you should go, gross, exactly. You see, the tongue can only say what the heart gives it to say. 
That's why the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul wants us to speak in such a way that we build each other up instead of tear each other down. In other words, when he, that's the meaning of what is good and necessary for edification and for grace for the hearer. Paul seems to be saying, speak what is good and wholesome. And let me be clear here because I think the text indicates it. For that moment, say what is good and wholesome and appropriate for that moment. And you might think, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remember the first part of this message and I'm going to tell the truth. Yes, the Bible says tell the truth. But you can tell the truth in such a way, absent grace, absent love, absent compassion, that you hurt people. Well, which is it, Gina? Tell the truth or not tell the truth? The Bible makes it abundantly clear. I'm not suggesting that we employ lies or that we refrain from telling the truth in order to spare somebody's feelings. I'm saying that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Paul isn't advocating the raw and insensitive words that are meant to wound rather than heal. We have to find a way to tell the truth in a way that's motivated by love, that has as its end goal the process of making things better instead of worse. I'm reminded of a slave in the ancient world. It was his practice to take a small amount of poison every single day and he would take more and more and then he would increase the dosage of the poison so that it was said that when he opened his mouth, he would wither the person that he spoke to. I think that that's what we do when we speak in such a way that we're finding it more and more easy to tear people down instead of build them up. It was said of Augustine that he hung a motto in his dining room that read, he who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table, unquote. Years ago, I learned the habit when a person says something that's very, very unkind, that may even still be true, to say, can I quote you on that? Because consider the source. It wasn't too long ago that <laughs> a person, I was making a comment about a particular person's doctrinal position and my friend, and he is a good friend, he said to me, I know this person. Do you realize that this person would never, ever, ever say anything unkind about you? And guess what? I'm not saying that we abandon good doctrine in order to spare people's feelings, but again, I've been reminded over and over and over again to try to be kind to be gracious in my speech. 
And so he talks about grace instead of grief. Look what it says in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Now this is important because when Paul brings this to a head and he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Think about what's going on in the text. Are there times in our life where we play hard and fast with the truth because we want to spare someone's feelings? I think that that's true. Do we really want to hurt somebody? Hopefully we don't. Does God care about how I feel? I think that the answer is yes. But Paul also wants us to know about how God feels. And so when he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? What does it mean to grieve or pain the Holy Spirit of God? We understand that all sin is grievous, but sin in the children of God is especially grievous. In what way? We find it hard to imagine the invisible Holy Spirit weeping over our sin. We find it easy to imagine a father's disappointment. We find it easy to imagine a mother's tears. We find it easy to imagine a friend's disapproval. But when we lie, when we fail to tell the truth, when we steal, when we act out in anger in ways that are dishonoring to God, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And you'll note that these things seem tied, again, to issues of the tongue. And issues of the heart. The word grieved, interestingly enough, is in the active voice. And it means to cause sorrow or pain. We know that the Holy Spirit can be resisted in Acts chapter 7 verse 51. This is a sin that's reserved for the unbeliever. Only the unbeliever is supposed to be able to resist the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, I want you to believe the truth about Jesus. I want you to believe that he loves you and that he died for you. I want you to believe that his sacrifice on the cross will save you from sin and keep you from going to hell and give you heaven as a permanent solution to the problem in your heart. The unbeliever says, no, no, no. The unbeliever resists the Holy Spirit. We also know that the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. This also is a sin that seems to be reserved for the unbeliever, but I suspect is also linked to the person who repeatedly hears the gospel, who repeatedly resists the Holy Spirit, who refuses the Holy Spirit's conviction and confession concerning Christ. This is the sin where the religious leaders see Jesus. They see his miracles. They see blind eyes open and deaf ears hear. They see the lame walk. They see the dead come back to life and the religious leader says he's doing this by the power of Satan by the way if you believe that Jesus is a dupe or a pawn of Satan if you believe that Jesus is a demonically infested satanically motivated being can you trust him as your savior Is it possible for you to believe that he can forgive your sin and give you eternal life? The Holy Spirit can be quenched 
in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. The Bible says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. And this seems to be a sin that's reserved for the church. When we quench the Spirit of God, we forfeit the power of God and the blessing of God. How in the world do we quench the Holy Spirit when we refuse to believe or we don't allow the Holy Spirit to do the work of conviction? I've repeatedly said to you, if I can talk you into accepting Christ as your Savior, someone more clever than me can talk you out of it. In order for a person to be truly saved, in order for a person to be truly born again, they have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. They have to be called by the Holy Spirit. There has to be a knocking on the door of their heart, a recognition of their own sin and their need for a Savior. We quench the Holy Spirit. When we try to do the Holy Spirit's job, the Holy Spirit can be resisted, blasphemed, quenched, grieved. Whatever else that means, it means that the Holy Spirit is a person. You see, that word grieved is a love word. That's what John Phillips writes. Only believers can grieve the Holy Spirit. John Phillips says, quote, the word grieved is a love word. You cannot grieve someone who does not love you. You might annoy that person. You might upset that person. You might infuriate that person. You might disappoint him, but you can't grieve him. You can only grieve someone who loves you. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. How? Again, when we allow our mouths to be dominated by the old life and our hearts with the old life, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? When we're contrary to the word of God or the will of God, when we think or act in a way that's contrary to the character of Christ, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And so, there's a reason why the Holy Spirit's called the Holy Spirit. He's holy. Paul commands, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? There's several reasons, not least of which is who he is. He's God. The third person of the Trinity he is God. And what does he do? It's the Holy Spirit who seals you to the day of redemption. That's the reason that Paul notes here. Paul's already told the Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is our down payment, our earnest, our inheritance. Do you remember in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where we learned that the Holy Spirit has been placed inside of heart, our hearts and been given to us as a kind of down payment of a future full reception that we're going to receive. Seals, by the way, were given in the ancient world to indicate ownership or possession. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is an indication that you are owned by the Holy Spirit. Paul will later write, you haven't been purchased with something as insignificant as gold or silver, you've been purchased with the blood of the lamb. 
You have been purchased by God, by Christ, by his sacrifice. You have been bought back from the world of slavery that you once were involved with. And so the Holy Spirit regenerates the believing sinner in Titus chapter 3 verse 5 and you'll remember in John chapter 3 verses 5 through 7 where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he says remember you must be born again you've got to be born from on high he tells Nicodemus you must be born again not as you first came into life but you must be born of spirit from a dark world into light and then he reminds us that you'll see the cross of Calvary where Jesus died for you. And it's in that very context that, G that he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer. The Holy Spirit fills us in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, conforms us into the image of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 3.18, strengthens us in our new nature in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. The Holy Spirit reveals truth to us in 1 Corinthians 2.10. The Holy Spirit then fills our mind and fills our heart and then fills our words at exactly the, the moment that we need him to. In Mark 13, 11, Jesus says, but when they arrest you and deliver you, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you're going to say, but whatever is given to you in that hour, speak it, for it is not you who speak. It is the Holy Spirit. Jesus invites us to not freak out and panic when we're placed in the most difficult of situations. Jesus said, you know what? I'll give you the spirit of God. Which will fill your heart. Which will fill your mouth. So that you'll have exactly the right thing to say. Instead of grieving the spirit. We allow grace to fill our heart. And so what does the Holy Spirit expect from us? And what should we expect from each other? Look what Paul writes in verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. He gives a short summary. We take off the old garments. We abandon, dare I say it, our dirty diapers. We put on the garments that make us Christ followers. Paul peeks in to our dirty diaper and sees bitterness, wrath, anger, evil speaking. Now, now think about this, moms. How many of us would throw away the baby when the diaper is soiled? You're not a good mom if you do. You throw away the diaper. You don't throw away the baby. And so you're wrong if you think that God throws you away when your diapers get full. Paul invites us to change our diaper. Put on a clean diaper. He says, 
Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away. Bitterness. This is the settled hostility that poisons the whole inner man, according to Warren Wiersbe. And I love that. This is the settled hostility. Bitterness sets in when someone hurts you. You hurt me. You, it injures you. You hurt me. You injured me. And then where do we go from there? It's a failure to forgive. This is the spirit of irritability, which leads to a venomous resentment. This is the spirit that says, you hurt me, and I'm not going to forgive you, and I'm not going to be reconciled with you. And then the bitterness begins to cloud your thinking and your heart and your judgment. He says, put that away. Wrath is, the, is explosive anger, which we briefly touched on when we talked about, about anger earlier. This is the wild rage that's the passion for the moment. This is when all of a sudden you erupt and think about, again, the challenge of what we're reading. Bitterness almost invariably leads to wrath. That seething resentment will all of a sudden manifest itself in that bitter, explosive venting. This is the kind of anger that blows up and then blows by. As quickly as the, the, the blow up takes place, then it just calms down. But it's still a violent path of destruction. Do you know what it's like? Um, imagine a hurricane that comes at you and destroys everything in, in its path and then it's gone. And then it's calm. And all you see are the ruination of what it left behind. Evil speaking. This is the Greek word blasphemia. It literally means to blasphemy or slander. These are the words that injure. This word evil speaking, I think in our language, it is a reference to something that that you and I, when we, if someone has ever used the term with you, abusive language. Abusive language is the kind of language that tears down and rips apart. This is the same word that's used in the Gospels to describe the abusive language of the mocking multitudes in Mark's Gospel. It's chapter 15, verse 29, where Jesus is hanging from the cross and the crowd say to him, you saved others, save yourself. It's the reviling that's spoken of in that passage. It's the same word. Malice is the Greek word kakia, which is usual word for depravity. It means a vicious disposition. This is the deep-seated evil hatred that serves as the root of all of the rest of the manifestations. This is the emotion that gives you the courage to deliberately hurt someone. And Paul says, these are the things that can no longer be a part of your life. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Even as Christ forgave you, we put off the old garment. We put on the new garment. We put on those things that make for grace instead of grudges. How could we do less, Paul writes? 
Wiest translates this verse where it says, and be kind to one another. In the original language, it actually says, and becoming kind. Do you know why I take great hope in that single sentence, and becoming kind? It's because there's been times in my life where I was less than kind. Less than kind. Not kind. And so we think to ourselves, will I ever be kind? Will I ever be tender-hearted? Will I ever be forgiving? And, and Paul, in the text, gives us at least a little wiggle room. In what way? And becoming kind. In what way? I'm not as kind as I could be. I'm not as kind as I should be. Becoming kind. Adding to kindness instead of subtracting. Adding grace, adding kindness. These are the tools to change the baby's diaper. How can we change? How can we be, become kind? How can we experience this radical revolution of heart? How can we grow and learn and change? It's the Holy Spirit in us. Growing us, changing us. We put off the dirty diaper. We put on the new diaper. Remember, put on doesn't mean pretend. Okay, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna pretend to be kind. I'm gonna pretend to be tender. I'm gonna pretend to forgive. That's not what he's talking about. Putting on isn't putting on a pretense, it is. Putting off the pretense and putting on kindness. This is, this is the willingness to act with generosity in love. In what way? In the same way that God acted in generosity and love towards you and towards me. So Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ, God in Christ has forgiven you. God has been kind to you. How? He acted with generosity and love. God has been tender with you. Tenderness here is sensitivity and sympathy to the needs of others. Forgiveness means we extend to others grace and mercy. Who do we give grace and mercy to? Those who need it. Those who need it. Let me ask you a question. Did you need God's grace and mercy in your life? Paul says, God's giving you grace and mercy. You can extend it to others. I can hear your voice. Go ahead, just be quiet for a second. I'm going to try and listen to your thoughts. Why should I? Why should I? Because this is the way Jesus has dealt with you. God's made a way 
to be kind to you. The Bible says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his tenderness and forgiveness before you ever existed, before you ever came into being, before you drew your first breath, before you ever had your first dirty diaper. (laughs) He made a way to change you, to give you a new set of clothes before you ever knew the meaning of the words injury, sin, rebellion, before those words or those deeds ever became a part of your life, there was heavenly pampers that were made just for you. So how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? We lie, we lash out, we steal, We use harmful and hurtful language. Lewis Sperry Schaefer in his book, He That Is Spiritual, identifies the key activity of truly spiritual people. He writes, quote, they avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. You need to hear the rest of the sentence. By confessing their sins to God. Do you want to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit? The best way to do that is to say, I've had an issue with this or with that. If you've ever been trapped, if you've ever been tripped up by any of the things that Paul talks about in this passage, we're given a provision. In 1 John 1, 9, remember it says, Confess your sin. And he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Lord, I've been having a problem with my mouth. I've been having a problem with my words. I've been having a problem with my deeds. What's your problem? Lying. Tell the truth. Stealing. Start working. Bitter words. Come up with a new set of words that are informed in your heart. And now all of a sudden, we begin to see what Paul is doing. Remember over and over again, I need you to experience unity. Oh, we want that. I need you to experience purity. Oh, I want that. How do we have unity as a church? It's found in Christ. How do we have purity in our heart? It's by putting in our heart the things that make for holiness, godliness, and righteousness. Here's Paul's point. You can change. You could be different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for kindness. Lord, we pray that we would not just be simply content to thank you for kindness and tenderness and forgiveness. But, Lord, we would want to give what's been given to us. That, Lord, we would not withhold what has not been withheld from us. 
And so, Lord, again, we thank you that you've given us permission that we can put off what's old, we can put on what's new, and that you've given us permission that we can do this, not just simply because it's right, but because we need each other. Because unity is important to you. And purity is important to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.